Hi, this is Things That Might Kill Us, a new podcast where we will discuss potential existential threats to humanity in a way that hopefully doesn't depress everyone in the first five minutes, over dinner and drinks. My name is Joe Dobbs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alice Biongani. In every episode, we'll be joined by world-leading experts to discuss some of the biggest challenges we face today, from nuclear weapons to artificial intelligence, climate change and pandemics. If it gets dark at times, know that we do try to end on a positive note, so do bear with us. But before we start this episode, if you enjoy it, please remember to give us a good rating. For our first episode, we'll be talking about nuclear weapons, diving right in and starting with the really scary stuff. But, as this is our first episode, we thought we'd start off by saying a little bit about why we're doing this. Elise and I met last year working at an international security think tank here in London, um, and we realized we were getting the same kinds of questions in the pub from our friends. Is that going to kill us? Should we be worried about this? What are the chances of that happening? And what we thought we'd do was invite these world-leading experts to the pub with us to chat with our friends. But they didn't want to come. They're busy. They've got a lot going on. So we thought we'd record one-off interviews with them, and then everyone will be able to listen. For our first episode, we'll be joined by Shatabi Shishetti, the Deputy Director of the European Leadership Network, a think tank in London, and an expert on nuclear issues. Joe also did a short interview with Dr. Bill Perry, the former U.S. Defense Secretary. The interview with Bill Perry was recorded in late January and the conversation with Shata late February. And obviously since then, an awful lot's happened that's kept nuclear issues relevant. We've had Trump firing various members of his cabinet and appointing more hawkish members, um, like Mike Pompeo, the new Secretary of State, and John Bolton, the new uh, National Security Advisor. And of course, we have the potential meeting in May with Uh, President Trump and the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. So, without further ado, let's go. So this is take three of this <laughs> short introduction that we've been trying. Um, we just had dinner. Alice made a lovely blue cheese gnocchi with walnuts and, and spinach. spinach yeah. uh, we've got a bottle of Prosecco, which was um, £8.50 from Sainsbury's, <laughs> reduced from £11.50. We're, we're quite, a fancy people. Yeah, quite a big reduction, which is what I looked for in a while. Um, which is exactly the preparation that we needed to talk about nuclear weapons this evening. That's my somber voice now because we're talking about nuclear weapons. Um, and to join us uh, this evening, we have Shata Shetty. Um, Shata is the Deputy Director of the European Leadership Network, um, before which she worked at the Royal United Services Institute, the British Council, and has been a long-term advisor to Des Brown, the former British Defence Secretary. She's been working on nuclear issues for um, many years now and is a regular um, published author, expert on these issues. So Shata, thank you very much. We're really pleased to have you. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Right, well, let's uh, let's get going. Here is um, the first bit of an interview that I did with Dr. Bill Perry. Bill Perry is the former US Defense Secretary. Um, he was Defense Secretary to Bill Clinton in the 1990s and has been working on nuclear weapons for a good part of 50 years. He was uh, working at the, Ministry, uh, the Department of Defense in America on, uh, on international security during the Cuban Missile Crisis was Undersecretary of Defense for Arms Control during um, possibly the height of the Cold War in the 1980s, has some terrifying stories in his book, um, My Journey at the Nuclear Brink, and has been working on nuclear weapons ever since he left um, high office. And he's now 91 years old and is still probably one of the most respected and active people working on this debate. And I'm very excited about this because he is a bit of a hero of mine. So anyway, over to Bill Perry. Secretary Perry, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. I know our listeners will appreciate your insight, although I have to say they may not enjoy what you're about to say. You've developed a bit of a reputation, and indeed you've referred to yourself as a bit of a prophet of doom, 
So with that in mind, I'm going to dive right in with my first question. Secretary Perry, are nuclear weapons going to kill us? <clears throat> Not if we act intelligently to deal with the scenarios out there which would cause them to kill us. There are many things we can do to reduce the likelihood of any of those scenarios becoming a reality. Unfortunately, we're not doing those things right now. But one very obvious example is the possibility of a terror group getting a nuclear bomb. So the danger of nuclear terrorism, I think, is very real, and the results would be quite catastrophic, much more so than most people realize. You probably know, Joe, our project has put out a uh, short video depicting what might happen if, it's, if a terror group set off a nuclear bomb in Washington, D.C. And it's not just the number of people killed, it's the social and economic and political consequences could be quite uh, devastating. I watched that video and it was, it was quite harrowing. Um, for the listeners at home, I'll, I'll say that it, it included the decapitation of the U.S. government and the terrible impacts of the weapon itself. But I think that um, yeah. a, lot of our, a lot of our listeners, will, when they think about nuclear weapons, um, they don't think about uh, non-state actors and terror groups like you're talking about here. They think about um, states. So before we go on to talk about, um, about terrorism, what do you think the, the likelihood is of a nuclear war between states? Um, I think, uh, happily, that probability of that happening is relatively low compared, say, to a possibility of a nuclear terror attack, say. But unfortunately, that probability is getting higher almost every month. Uh, in particular in the, the present uh, extreme hostility between the United States and North Korea, which could end up in a small-scale regional nuclear war. Even so, I say small-scale, we're talking about a nuclear war in the Korean Peninsula and involving Japan, could involve as many casualties, as many people killed, as all of World War II, for example. The difference being is that the casualties could happen in six hours instead of in six years. I hear a lot about... Um about the possibility of a small-scale nuclear war. And I hear this as well in the work that, that I've done on, on Russia and on, uh, on Russia-West relations. I know that the, the Russian government has a potential policy anyway of a preemptive nuclear strike insofar as they'll use a nuclear weapon to demonstrate how serious they are and in an attempt to de-escalate the situation. How likely do you think it is that a, that a small-scale nuclear war won't turn into a big nuclear war? I think, first of all, Joe, I would say that the possibility of either the United States or the Russia making a surprise nuclear attack on either country is vanishingly low. I think that's very remote, very remote possibility. I, that's not something that I really worry about. What I do worry about, though, is that we, United States and Russia might blunder, might blunder into a nuclear war by... The, and that, we have sowed the seeds for that, the hostility we have for each other. That creates the environment by which a blunder is possible. I'm talking about a blunder, in a sense, using World War One. It is an analogy where some historians say that we sleepwalked into a war. No nation in August of 1914, no nation was planning a war. No nation was planning to strike another country. But we just step by step blundered into a war, which when it did start, everybody thought it was going to be over by Christmas with relatively few casualties. Instead, it went on for four years with a total of 25 million people killed. So uh, blundering into a war is the was the, what we did then, and that's the analogy I look at today for what could happen, that the U.S. and Russia might get some kind of hostility going, perhaps in Ukraine, perhaps in the Baltics, and that that hostility could turn into a military conflict, a small-scale military conflict. 
So, Shata, based on what we just heard from Secretary Perry, there seems to be a real risk that nuclear weapons could indeed directly or indirectly uh, kill us. Uh, first of all, I just want to know what you think about what Secretary Perry said and how you came to work on this topic. Thank you. Well, um, can I just say it's uh, a bit intimidating to follow the great Dr. Perry, but I'm really happy to be here and to have this really important conversation with you both. Yeah, I was quite intimidated. <laughs> um, but... With respect to Dr. Perry's comments, I mean, he's he's absolutely right. Um, the world's nuclear dangers are, in my opinion, growing. Um, nuclear weapon states and their allies are uh, involved in, in a number of geopolitical um, tensions. Um, just just a quick question to sort of like get the, the facts uh, straight and out of the way. H- mm-hmm. How many countries uh, own nuclear weapons today? So today we have nine countries which uh, possess nuclear weapons. Five of those are uh, official nuclear weapon states. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain in a bit what I mean by official. Um, and four are uh, quote unquote unofficial nuclear weapon states. Um, in the 80s, there were about 70,000 nuclear warheads in existence. So we've now gone down to about 15,000, okay. which is positive, of course. But the majority of those weapons are held by the United States and Russia. Yeah. So the onus is on them really to, to bring down their nuclear weapons mm-hmm. numbers. The huge majority, right? Because I think the that majority. approximately more than 90% of all nuclear warheads are, on, are owned by Russia and the United States. Yeah, Yeah, because I think the people sort of get a bit confused when they hear like that the UK has nuclear weapons, France has nuclear weapons, China has nuclear weapons, uh-huh. and yeah. then Russia and the US have them as well because... Well, I think China has like 280, 300, and then yeah. the US has thousands. And it's yeah. not really like... A, it's not really equivalent. And, and how much does it cost to make and maintain all of this equipment? So it's projected the, the US um, uh, military complex uh, in terms of their nuclear weapons is projected to cost $1.2 trillion over the next 30 years. Um, the UK has just gone through the process of uh, debating and agreeing the renewal of its Trident submarines. Um, and that was uh, projected to cost 30 billion pounds um so we're talking year. about huge huge numbers well, yeah, it's not, huge numbers. but well, with res- yeah, relative to the rest of their defense budgets mm. it's, it's yeah relative yeah. To, to the rest of the defense budgets it's small and but is it because it's so expensive that not all states would want to acquire nuclear weapons do you think that's one of the reasons why or is it also a strategic reason no i mean one of the reasons one of the main reasons that other nuclear other weapons <laughs> Sorry. Uh, one of the main reasons that other countries don't have nuclear weapons is because of a really important treaty called the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which um, was agreed and signed in the 70s. Um, 190 states are party to the treaty. This is the treaty that um, is why the US, the UK, France, China and Russia are nuclear weapon states, the official states, like I mentioned earlier. And the rest are non-nuclear weapon states. We have countries, however, like India, Pakistan, Israel and the DPRK who aren't members of this treaty. Mm -hmm. Actually, technically, the DPRK withdrew from it. India and Pakistan didn't sign up to the treaty. Um, So they have nuclear weapons, but they're not... um, they aren't party to this really important treaty. And the treaty, the main bargain within the treaty is that the countries that are kind of sanctioned, so to speak, um, allowed to have these weapons, the five states that I mentioned, um, they, they, they're kind of, uh, they're allowed to possess these weapons, but the other states agree not to acquire or develop their own nuclear capabilities okay. um, on the provision that these countries that are nuclear weapon states agree to uh, disarm 
I mean, that's the bargain at the heart of this mm-hmm. treaty. So but, other countries, um, you know, promise not to uh, build nuclear weapons or acquire nuclear capabilities. But they agreed to disarm gradually and in a very multilateral way rather than... General and complete yeah. disarmament is the yeah. the wording in the treaty. Um, so the problem is there isn't, it isn't specific mm-hmm. um, and it isn't time bound, yeah. which is why there's a huge degree of frustration in the international community because um, it's very clear that the nuclear weapon states aren't um, abiding by their uh, commitments to this treaty to disarm. But, but if, if nuclear states were to reduce the number of nuclear weapons that they own, I'm guessing that countries like the US, Russia, or I mean, even France would still want to keep some nuclear weapons, at least just for deterrence. And, and how many nuclear warheads would be enough just for deterrence? Well, the UK defines its nuclear capability as a minimum deterrent. Mm-hmm. Um, some would argue that the US and Russia are way beyond the level of minimum deterrence, which is why countries like China um, argue that they won't go into multilateral uh, disarmament negotiations until the US and Russia bring down their numbers Mm -hmm. um, because it far exceeds the numbers that all the other nuclear armed states possess at the moment. Do you think it would make us safer if the US and Russia had fewer or just is the general existence of them the the big threat? I think it... I think the number of weapons that they currently possess is disproportionate to um, to what is required to maintain mm-hmm. deterrence. And also, I mean, the more they have, the more they can be stolen. You can have accidents, risks of yeah. miscalculation. Absolutely. So having sort of the minimum amount for just deterrence. Because, but I mean, what sometimes I, I have a bit of a hard time understanding is those weapons were created to be used or just as a deterrence? Well, deterrence only works um, if the other party believes that you will actually use them. Mm -hmm. So they've been described as political weapons. Um, They've been described as militarily useless because really, if you need to use them, then deterrence doesn't hold. Mm -hmm. So as soon as a nuclear weapon is used, then the whole concept of deterrence is redundant. But I would argue that having 7,000 nuclear weapons is unnecessary when you have other states who have... 200? I mean, is it really necessary to have 10 times, more than 10 times? Basically, what you're saying is that the more you have, it doesn't necessarily make you safer, but it can actually be more dangerous to have more. And it also encourages other states to believe that they should acquire a nuclear capability to maintain their security. Mm -hmm. I mean, if that's the argument that's being made by the nuclear weapon states who currently possess this capability, Mm -hmm. that they need them for their security and for Mm -hmm. an insurance policy for some future threat then why is it the other states that don't have nuclear capability Mm -hmm. uh, are are safe but i'm guessing this whole sort of strategic uh discussion is also based on the fact that the majority of countries don't have nuclear weapons because they also know that it works in a system of alliance which would mean that japan doesn't need one south korea doesn't need one because they rely on the the u.s protection can you maybe Mm -hmm. tell a bit more Mm -hmm. about that Yeah, I mean, so this would be a nuclear umbrella uh, or how you would describe um, uh, a a security alliance Mm -hmm. that the US provides for um, uh, Japan and South Korea. And in fact, within NATO, you have US tactical nuclear weapons, which are quote unquote battlefield weapons, which are deployed in countries in Europe, which I think a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, And they 
they provide a security assurance to some other countries um, in order for them not to develop nuclear capability. So, for example, in the instance of South Korea, they actually did have U.S. tactical nuclear weapons on their soil, which were withdrawn, I believe, in 1991. Um, Japan has um, the technical know-how, it has the nuclear material, it has the money, it has the capability to um, develop um, its own indigenous uh, nuclear um, deterrent system should it want to. How, how long would it take for Japan to sort of cre- create or come up with its own nuclear weapon? I, w- I would say a couple of years. Okay. So this is, you used a phrase there that like I hear, you know, sometimes and it, it's frightening, this battlefield nuclear weapon. And actually the, the US government has just talked about um, it's renewing its nuclear deterrent and building, you know, more nuclear weapons in part because it says that um, that Russia is getting more nuclear weapons and renewing theirs, and China is as well. Um, so that you can really see how this becomes an arms race. And this particular battlefield kind of nuclear weapon is what I alluded to a little bit in um, in my interview with Dr. Perry, where the idea that there would be weapons that you could use to show that you're serious. So this idea that you know there was a conventional conflict starting between Russia and the West, and it would um, escalate to a point where a you know one one you know Russia might say we need to prove we're serious, so we're going to use a tactical you know nuclear weapon that is low yield, which is what the US government in its most recent nuclear posture review has said that it's going to develop. So do you see a situation, I mean, does, is this all politics again, or is there really a serious case that some military figures would use to, to say that nuclear weapons are not strategic in the sense that they deter, but tactical in the sense that you could use them to win a war? Mm, I think that's the danger, is that we don't want these weapons to become considered um, usable weapons. And I think that's the danger of this um, US nuclear posture review that you're referring to is is um, the notion that um, the United States is considering these weapons as more usable um, rather than strategic. Um, Some have argued that there's no need for these tactical nuclear weapons in Europe because it's very unlikely that they're going to get used. some have also made the case that Russia has a doctrine of potentially using nuclear weapons and you referred to in your discussion with Dr. Perry to de-escalate a conflict um, by um, its use of tactical nuclear weapons. Um, what Something that Dr. Perry also said is that to him, the, the most likely nuclear war is, um, a, is not a political one, but an accidental one. Mm-hmm. And he talked a bit about what he called blundering into war or sort of sleepwalking into war. Yeah. Would you also agree with this uh, conclusion? Absolutely. I think this is a, a huge danger of miscalculation or accident. I think we can see that at the moment in the Korean Peninsula. Um, we have a fiery uh, leader in Kim Jong-un. We've got a fiery leader in uh, President Trump. Um, both of them using very harsh rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, the US um, you, and um, its allies in the region um, obviously trying to, to manage a, a very um, kind of dangerous and unpredictable situation with the uh, developments in North Korea. You can well imagine a situation where, for example, uh, if the North Koreans were to test a ballistic missile um, and it went in the wrong direction mm-hmm. and somehow went in the direction of Japan or um, South Korea, that one of these other nations would interpret that as an attack on their soil and how an escalation could arise from that situation. So absolutely, um, I think there is a real danger of miscalculation and accident in the use of nuclear weapons. So Dr. Perry, in his book that he published a few years ago, um, that actually Shatter and I both sort of went to the book launch in the UK, um, we um, we were sort of, everyone in the audience was just 
stunned into silence when he started talking about the examples of how close we came to a nuclear war. Um, he was talking about a time in the 80s when he was, I think, Deputy Defence Secretary, I can't, I can't be certain, um, where um, there was some, he was walking in the middle of the night and told that missiles were, you know, firing towards the US um, and that he needed to get to the White House. And anyway, eventually, at the last moment, they realised that it was, it was a false alarm. Um, there's loads of examples of this, of a Russian uh, sort of desk officer in, uh, in, their, in their command centre who saw that um, there were, you know, thousands of missiles flying in, realised it was a training drill that, you know, that he hadn't been made aware of. And it, you know, all of these things yeah. just come up to I mean, it. There have also been problems with just maintenance workers, yeah. uh, collision between planes, a tool falling in one instance. Mm. So, I mean, I'm not sure that everyone is just aware of how risky it is just to have these nuclear weapons, not even in a strategic way of someone would actually decide to use them, mm. but just having them around and manipulating them. Uh, how dangerous it is to have them. And one thing I would like to, to sort of discuss and have your opinion on, Chata, is that when when you talk um, about nuclear weapons and non-proliferation and disarmament with people who, who work on those issues, some mention the moral case for nuclear weapons, uh, saying and arguing that nuclear weapons, specifically because using them would be so awful, have actually prevented conflict, mm -hmm. and that maybe getting rid of nuclear weapons um, at all would lead to potential more conflict and more casualties. What's your take on that? Mm. Well, yeah, absolutely. Some people argue that because there hasn't been a, a nuclear conflict over the last 70 mm -hmm. years and they, they have actually preserved the peace. Um, well, I mean, first of all, I would say uh, it's really difficult or nearly impossible to prove mm -hmm. a negative. Yeah. Um, so we, we don't really know otherwise. But also, I think it's the number of weapons that we currently have in in, with respect to the size of the arsenals, um, with respect to the fact that they're being modernized in all of the nuclear armed countries today, um, and with respect to situations where there are near misses or mm -hmm. incidents or accidents, really, you know, we're lucky to be in a situation where we haven't had um, we haven't had an accident, we haven't had an incident, we haven't had um, something terrible happen, even if it wasn't a deliberate state on state um, conflagration. Um, so, so do you think that for now the sort of best thing to work towards keeping this moral case in mind wouldn't be to get rid of nuclear weapons entirely but to reduce the stockpile to what we call that minimum uh, number of warheads that you need for deterrence so making sure that we reduce the stockpile and that no new states actually acquire nuclear weapons sort of to keep them but to keep the smallest amount necessary and possible I think so. I think that we need to reduce the numbers that we have to uh, a level of at least minimum deterrence. But I don't think we're even at the point where we can talk about elimination of global zero. Mm -hmm. I think we need to get to the point where states are in a, a position where they can have this multilateral negotiations, um, where they're at the level where it's just hundreds, not thousands on, as they describe as hair trigger hair trigger alerts. So these weapons can be uh, launched at minutes notice. And that's kind of what the your organization, the European Leadership Network, has been doing. If I'm right, they were founded originally working on nuclear weapons, but you've kind of broadened out now to focus on the you know the wider relationship between Russia and the West and de-escalating the general conflict so that we can get back to a point where we're talking about nuclear weapons again. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, we set up the European Leadership Network in 2009-2010 when President Obama um, really raised the awareness of this issue and pledge to um, reduce the role of nuclear weapons and work towards a world free of nuclear of nuclear weapons. So we um, we wanted to create a, a European pillar for um, President Obama's um, kind of bigger objectives. And what we did was um, 
create this network of leaders, of politicians, of diplomats, of military, of military people all across Europe who were really passionate about this, about passionate about reducing the role of nuclear weapons, about non-proliferation, about disarmament, and produce um, kind of ideas, policy proposals to to reduce uh, to reduce these the, the prominence of these weapons in in defence policies. Um, but one thing we found was that a lot of um, contemporary politicians and um, people, policymakers working on these issues were just, you know, they were they were not familiar with the detail of these issues. They weren't um, aware of the danger. And I mean, actually, yeah. talking about that, let's let's hear it from uh, Secretary Perry on if there was actually a nuclear war, uh, how would it happen and how, how bad would it be? And then we can come back and have uh, a conversation about that. When I was growing up in the 1990s and early 2000s, we simply never spoke about nuclear weapons or their potential use. In, in this, not in the same way, anyway, at least, as my parents did when they grew up in the 50s and 60s. So this question might seem a bit naive, but for our listeners, if there was a nuclear war, how bad would it be? You know, a large-scale nuclear war, for example, between the United States and Russia, uh, I would simply describe it as being the end of our civilization. There's no way I can imagine that our civilization could survive hundreds of nuclear weapons being dropped on each of the countries. And both U.S. and Russia have many more than hundreds. We have thousands of nuclear weapons. So uh, it's it beggared imagination, really. It, it, you really can't think about it without imagining. You can't think seriously about it without believing that this is going to really lead to an end of our civilization as we know it. And what about one of those small-scale wars that, that, uh, that seems possible, um, at the very least, in the Korean Peninsula? Even with just a few well, nuclear weapons going off, how would that be? If a war to result in the Korean Peninsula, or if a war to result in between India and Pakistan, I said, I wouldn't call it a small scale, I'd call it a medium scale, in which dozens and maybe even a, a nuclear weapons are, uh, are used. I think we're talking about casualties comparable to World War II, or as I said, comparable to World War II, except that the people were killed in six hours instead of in six years. It's a, it's a compression of time scale, but with the same results. A nuclear war in Korean Peninsula involving Japan could basically destroy the industrial capacity of both South Korea and Japan, which is an important part of today's economy. So the economic, direct economic consequences would be uh, would be quite terrible. But beyond that, there are the indirect consequences that would, that would result from the instability created by such a war and by the uncertainty. Uh, a war between India and Pakistan could entail not only many, many millions of people killed, maybe tens of millions, but it could very well lead to a climate change resulting from the blocking of the sun rays caused by all of the smoke and dust going up into the stratosphere as a result of the many cities being burned. So we look at the at scale of, of disaster, and nuclear terrorism is one scale, which is, which is in my video, depicts as much more than people imagine. A war in the Korean Peninsula could involve casualties close to those of World War II, a war in between India and Pakistan could affect not only tens of millions of people in those two countries, but it could actually affect the climate and the well-being of people all over the globe. And a war between the United States and Russia could be the end of civilization. So we need to think of those in qualitative terms like that to, to focus our thinking on how serious these, uh, such, a, such an actions would be. And I know that in terms of a terrorist attack, um, Lots of people have long worried about the, the potential for a non-state actor to get hold of a nuclear weapon. Indeed, several senior um, defense and military figures 
have repeatedly told me in, in various events that they're astonished it hasn't already happened. I am too, Joe, but I will say that it's the one area in which we have taken consequential actions in the work done uh, by the nuclear summits initiated about eight or nine years ago have gone, made significant progress in making it much harder for a terror group to get a hold of the fissile material that they would need in order to make a nuclear bomb. And the nuclear security summits were a positive step forward. They do not go nearly as far as they could have gone. And part of the reason for that is because the hostility between the United States and Russia led Russia to want to make a statement by not attending the last security summit. I think that's regrettable. Given all these risks and given the damage that would be done if they were used, what's the point in nuclear weapons? I think nuclear weapons, if they ever had a point, have outlived their usefulness. There was a point where we, we believed that nuclear weapons prevented the Soviet Union from conducting a strike on the United States and its allies. In particular, we were very much concerned that the Soviet Union was going to conduct an attack on Western Europe, sort of reverse of the Operation Barbarossa, which the Germans conducted against the Soviet Union during World War II. I believe that, at least by the 70s and 80s and 90s, when in many ways the danger of the Cold War was at its peak, I believe that danger was over, either overstated or non-existent. I don't believe the Soviet Union was indeed planning to do that. One can argue that nuclear weapons prevented that from happening, but it, even if you believe that, that is not the situation today. There's no circumstance that I can envision in which any country, including Russia, would deliberately strike another country for some sort of territorial gains or some sort of political goals. So the nuclear weapons we have to prevent that, in my judgment, are preventing something that's not going to happen. And in the meantime, they create a very, very real danger just by their very existence. They create all the dangers we've been talking about, a danger of a nuclear terror group getting one, the danger of a regional nuclear war, and even what I think is the remote danger of a large-scale nuclear war. Secretary Perry, we first met um, in March 2016 when you were in London um, giving a talk about your new book, uh, My Journey at the Nuclear Brink. It's yeah. been, it hasn't been that long since then, but it feels like a very long time. Do you think we are in a more dangerous position only nearly two years later, or do you think that things have stayed the same? It seems to me like every year, we, every month even almost, it's getting more dangerous. There are hopes of taking actions to lower the danger have not been realized. Indeed, the danger continues to get greater. Wow. Okay. That was... Um, that was gloomy and yeah. terrifying. I think when Alice and I thought about like starting this podcast, we want to talk about like serious issues, about big things that... But we want to do it in like a fun, accessible way. And that's why we've got Prosecco, we've had dinner. <laughs> yeah, but this maybe... is killing a bit the Prosecco and dinner vibe. Yeah, I mean, one silver lining I take from it is that at least this would happen in six hours rather than over years. You know, True, like, so we wouldn't we could, even have to worry about too long. Days. And I always take from knowing that I live in the middle of London. And Which would be a target. Like first target. First I probably target won't, we probably won't even notice that it's happening. But... So that is what I can tell the listeners back at home. Anyway, back on to this um, terrifying conversation that we're having. Um, I'd like to say that it gets better towards the end, but I think it maybe does, but we'll see. Um, I guess, Shatter, listening to what Dr. Perry was talking about there, um, he said something really interesting, which was that the, the threat is, you know, is, is higher today. Um, do you agree? I, I mean, I would obviously defer to Dr. Perry and his experience, but I, I do agree. I think we have um, more nuclear weapon states than we did during the Cold War in more unstable regions. 
we have terrorists wanting to acquire nuclear capability. Um, he talks a bit about nuclear terrorism. So I think we absolutely need to do as much as we can to try and reduce nuclear risks um, by um, by kind of securing loose nuclear material, by reducing um, the number of weapons we have, by um, taking them off, um, you know, hair trigger alert, um, and by you know doing making more effort to also reduce um, tensions in 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 certain regions. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, from a, a non-expert uh, perspective, <clears throat> it seems that we, I mean, we heard a lot about nuclear weapons and the risk that they were for humanity during the Cold War. But the Cold War was between two states and also two blocks that were quite stable. But now when we see President Trump tweeting, my nuclear buttons uh, bigger than yours to the North <laughs> Korean leader, we do have that feeling that it's not sort of like two systems fighting against each other and knowing the risks, but it's more... Basically, the, the system is stable, maybe more stable now, but that the leaders are maybe more unstable. Um, I don't know if that's an analysis that you share. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think when you consider the US and uh, the role it has in the international system with a number of countries dependent on the security provisions that it provides, having a US president who is erratic and comes out with very... Um, um, Uh, rash and um, kind of tempered statements such as the ones um, he makes to the North Korean leader um, you know threatening fire and fury um, I think makes uh, makes relationships with other allies um, unstable um, it potentially makes them question whether they can depend on the US it makes uh, uh, clearly it makes the dynamic between the US and North Korea also unstable Um, and I think that now, because we don't have the two blocks, we have a number of countries. We can't be um, so certain that um, the system, the Cold War deterrent system, is going to um, is going to prevail. Yeah, I think what you say about allies is is interesting. When a few months ago, when uh, the U.S. government announced it was in, intending to seek um, developing smaller, lower yield nuclear weapons in, in response to perceived actions from the Russians. There's a remarkable thing where the, the Germans are, you know, a really long-time ally of the of the US, um, sort of putting out a press statement saying that they, you know, object to the nuclear arms race and really sort of calling out, not necessarily directly, but quite clearly indirectly, um, the US government. But I think sort of, uh, you know, we don't really need to go over the, the the risks of what would happen in the event of a nuclear war because I think Dr. Perry has scared us enough, and I think that it, I think most people are in agreement, even the people who really support the the nuclear weapons and even the people who who abhor them they actually agree on one central premise which is that they would be utterly devastating it's it's the reason why we shouldn't have them for some and it's the reason why we need them to deter for, for others but i guess one thing that we very rarely talk about when we're talking about this issue um is the decision making process around launching a nuclear weapon and the procedure of launching it um obviously it's different across different countries but in a really sort of you know high octane environment where both sides don't know what's going on For example, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, how is, you know, if if a state decides to use a nuclear weapon or a state has to respond to the to the use of another country's nuclear weapon, and they've got only you know thirty forty five minutes to decide, how does that, you know, from from your understanding, how does that go? Mm. Well, um, I can talk a little bit about the U.S. and and also the U.K. Um, in the U.S. instance, there was actually a, a recent congressional um, hearing before Christmas on whether. Um, the system of uh, the presidential command and control of nuclear weapons should be should be changed um, because of how erratic President Trump is. And 
and they found basically that um, that he does have executive power. He doesn't need to consult with his defence secretary. He doesn't need to um, confer with advisors. Um, so that is how their system is designed. It's designed um, uh, whereby the president has has control of of the nuclear button, so to speak. Which, I mean, which I guess would make sense in a sort of strategic and tactical uh, way, because if you know that you have missiles incoming that are about to sort of strike you in the next minute, you need to be able to do something immediately. I mean, you wouldn't want to be able to uh, gather all members of Congress and have a hearing and discuss everything. I mean, it has to be an immediate reaction. That's true. But then you have you do have instances in the past of um, false alarms. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a situation where potentially um, you are being told that you have a number of missiles headed your way from from Russia and actually it transpires that these aren't um, this is a false alarm and these aren't actually um, you know missiles coming to attack the United States um, you want to also have the option of having a bit more time to consider mm-hmm. consider your um, your, your response and maybe discuss it yeah. with a couple of people before pushing it's, actually on the button it's so daunting I mean like I don't envy these politicians have to make this decision. You've got, you know, less than an hour to make a decision about whether or not to, as Dr. Perry put it, end civilization. And especially, as you were saying, Shatter, because these politicians are not nuclear experts. They're not necessarily from military background. And the more, um, I mean, the more time is going to pass, those generations, the next generations of presidents and prime ministers won't necessarily have the experience of the Cold War. So for mm. them, people from our generation wouldn't have that background of how bad it would be and how, of living with nuclear risks. So I think maybe it's also because now we hear about nuclear weapons in every action movie, uh, every spy movie, in history books, but it's not something that is actually uh, part of our daily lives. Absolutely. And the president, you've got to remember, in the case of the United States, also has the ability to launch, um, you would call them ICBMs, so intercontinental ballistic missiles, mm-hmm. with minutes notice. So, you know, this is a really terrifying situation where a leader um, can launch nuclear weapons um, with next to no decision-making time, potentially, if he wanted to. And when you have a situation of a president like um, uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, some people are really fearful um, that there's so much power concentrated in one individual's hands. I feel like we should give our listeners the time to go and pour another drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I guess... Um, I mean, I think we hear you and we hear <laughs> Bill Perry that this is something that we should care about. Um, Alice and I very much agree we should tackle these things head on and that we should think about these threats rather than shying away from them. And to that end, Alice has been uh, reading about um, the nuclear winter and what yeah. we would all, you know, where we would ski in that nuclear winter. Do yeah, we ski so, in I mean, the winter? I'm, I'm not really sure that this will um, lighten up the mood, really. But um, preparing for this podcast, I've been reading a lot about this topic and watching lots of very scary YouTube videos. Uh, but I think what really was striking for me is that when thinking about um, a nuclear war, we mostly think about the explosion. We have those images in our minds, and this is the thing that really strikes us. But reading about nuclear winter really made me aware that the biggest threat isn't really the explosion or even the radio the radioactive fallout that would kill a million, but it would be more a sort of like global nuclear-induced winter uh which would basically create sort of like a mini ice age all over the world. And I was reading this this study um, 
that said that with, with only about a thousand nukes, which is already a lot, but in a case of like a full blown out nuclear war, uh, you would have a cooling of about 20 uh, degrees Celsius in most um, of the areas in the coal farming regions in Europe, in the United States, in China, etc., uh, which would mean the elimination of most of our food production, millions dead, the infrastructure collapsed, uh, starvation, hypothermia. I'm really killing the mood here, but also <laughs> epidemics. Uh, so I think this is really the global picture that we should uh, have in mind. It's not just a conflict and then people will die in North and South Korea, but basically us as Europeans, we wouldn't be involved. It would really change. It would basically be a climate change. Uh, for the it's actually a solution to climate change. Really. Exactly. Just <laughs> let's induce it ourselves and then be done with it. Maybe this, maybe this is what our leaders are thinking, that the best solution exactly, to Exactly. Just solve <laughs> two birds with one stone. Okay. Well, we've depressed everyone enough now. So I did also ask Bill Perry about what we could do to stop this from happening and you know the more positive elements of things so why don't we go over and listen again to what he had to say and then hopefully we'll end on ha- telling you all how to fix this problem that no one's been able to fix for decades um over to bill you and the rest of the people at the william j perry project the project that you work on in uh, in california are doing an awful lot to raise awareness about how to reduce the nuclear threat just for our listeners, what do you think the best ways our governments and indeed ourselves can uh, go about reducing the nuclear threat? I think the dangers are getting, getting greater because the political leaders in our countries and, and certainly the population in our countries do not understand just how great the danger is and, and what risks they are taking. And so I believe the important thing we can be doing today is an educational program to alert the population and the political bodies of the dangers we are facing. That's what we're doing on our project. That's why we have created online courses, of which we have now uh, three of them prepared, that anybody can get online and take these courses and get educated on the problem. That's why we have created these uh, videos, which in five minutes' time give an uneducated, uh, an uninformed person on this issue a good information about what the dangers are. So education, education is the key right now, and that's what we are putting all of our effort on, on online courses and on... Uh, and on online videos to try to get a large body of the population informed of the danger so that we can urge our political leaders to take the actions necessary to lower those dangers. I have, as you said, I've been called a prophet of doom, but I really like to see myself as somebody who's working to avert, to avert the doom. And the way we try to work to avert that is through education. And what action would you like politicians to be taking? Well, one good, good example, of course, is the nuclear summit, which we've already discussed. That was a con- consequential, concrete action to uh, lower the danger of a, of a nuclear terror attack. But uh, the bigger danger, which is of a of a uh, regional nuclear war, even a large-scale nuclear war, we need to get a better understanding among our political leaders of just how cause disastrous that would be. We are talking today uh, seriously about a military attack against North Korea, which in my judgment would undoubtedly lead to a response from North Korea could all too easily escalate into a nuclear war. And I think we consider this action because we don't fully understand what the consequences of a regional nuclear war would be, what the consequences of a nuclear war on the Korean Peninsula would be. That we're talking really about fatalities that could be equivalent to those of World War II. And I think if people understood that, there would not be so much loose talking about military action. Secretary Perry, I think that is more than enough for our listeners to be thinking about, and I'm sure that they are all sat quietly right now. Thank you so much for joining us and for offering us your advice and your wisdom. Thank you, Joe. I'm very pleased and very impressed. So God bless you and for what you're doing and keep, keep at it. So 
um, now that we have had a look at all the worst aspects of this debate and this conversation, um, the last thing we would like to discuss is what can we do to actually uh, prevent a nuclear war from happening and what can we do as just citizens? Uh, I think that the first thing I would like to do is maybe be a bit of a devil's advocate here and say, why would states like France, the United States of Russia give up their comparative advantage and this dissuasive tool that they have if they think that it's necessary for their protection? Like, What would be the logic behind them just giving it up? Mm. Well, like I mentioned at the, the start of our conversation, France and the UK and Russia and the United States and China are all members of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. If other states who don't possess nuclear weapons can see that these states aren't giving up their nuclear capabilities, then what's the incentive for them exactly. to remain party to mm -hmm. this treaty? The states that don't have nuclear weapons. Okay. The, the, the grand bargain at the heart of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is that those countries that don't have them won't acquire them, and those ones that do will give them up. Mm -hmm. And if they don't seem to be adhering to their obligation, then the treaty falls apart. And what you end up with is a global system where it's not just nine countries that have nuclear weapons, but a countless number. Mm -hmm. That was a, a nightmare scenario that President Kennedy envisaged um, in the 60s, when he could see 20, 25 and upward of countries with nuclear te technology, with nuclear capabilities, with nuclear weapons. And that's really should be an incentive for countries that do have nuclear weapons to reduce and eventually get rid of theirs because we don't want to end up in a situation where it's more than just the nine, but we have countries in very dangerous regions, including the Middle East, in, in Asia, where there's a proliferation of countries, of weapons, of technology. Mm -hmm. So really, we want to try and encourage countries that do have their weapons to cut down on the numbers and work towards um, global zero. So you, you don't think that initiatives such as uh, last year's Nobel Peace Prize, the international campaign against nuclear weapons, do you think that they're worthy but just idealistic? Or are they actually you know helping in this situation? I think they're worthy and idealistic. And I think there's a place for them, along with all other organizations who work in this space. I think there's a space for CND. I think there's a space for ICANN. I think there's a space for um, ourselves, the European Leadership Network, who... Um, sit in another place in the spectrum where a bit more we would consider realistic, a bit more pragmatic, um, but it doesn't mean that the others um, don't do valuable, important, worthy work. I think you need pressure from all different um, sides of the debate. Um, and I think that it's important that the work that they do to raise awareness of the danger of nuclear weapons, um, particularly among people who are not aware of these weapons, of their existence, um, of um, the catastrophic consequences of their use, um, especially amongst the general public. I think that's where ICANN and um, other organizations can play a really important role. Um, I would say for the European Leadership Network, we, um, we target or we work more with policymakers and politicians, and we're much more focused on uh, political leadership and getting uh, politicians to really care about this issue and understand why they need to put pressure in their own countries and on their own governments to reduce the reliance on nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think that we might feel a bit gloomy now after having listened to these, um, you know, these dire warnings from from uh, from Bill Perry and also from Shatter. 
But I think that um, that we've got to remember that you know the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was a landmark treaty that, that helped govern nuclear weapons and and it discouraged people from getting nuclear weapons and encourage um, the states that do have them to reduce them, was conducted during the Cold War when um, when relations were terrible between absolutely at the height of the Cold yeah. War. Yeah, and then the same thing with uh, with arms control agreements with, uh, uh, when Reagan was president, and also in the last few years, you know we've. It's not that far far gone um, that we, the US and Russia agreed treaties to reduce nuclear stockpiles. But also, one thing that um, that Bill Perry was talking about earlier about um, how we've avoided a non-state actor getting nuclear weapons. That's partly because of the nuclear security summit. So it is possible. We shouldn't be defeatist about about these um, the risk of these weapons. There is stuff that can be done, and it doesn't need to come from a particularly extreme idealistic side or even an extreme pragmatist side. There is a place, as you say, for everyone. Mm-hmm. And there's also. Um, you know the legitimate concerns on of everyone in the debate, um, both from a, a an extreme disarming side, but also a, you know very much on the deterrent and the need for these weapons. Everyone has a role, and we can do something. Mm. And actually, Shada, yeah. you have recently uh, published uh, a collection of uh, articles on something called the Nuclear Ban Treaty. Can mm. you just tell us a little bit more about what what the, this initiative is? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier the prospect of the nuclear winter mm-hmm. if um, a small number or relatively small number of nuclear weapons are uh, used in a conflict, say, between India and Pakistan. Um, one of the uh, one of the uh, the the treaty on uh, the prohibition of nuclear weapons is the full uh, title of the, the the official title of the nuclear ban treaty. It stemmed from a movement on about raising awareness of the humanitarian consequences of uh, nuclear weapons use. Mm -hmm. So there were three conferences that took place um, in the years preceding uh, this treaty um, opening for signature. So we're talking about a UN uh, treaty? Yes, we're talking about a UN treaty that opened for signature last year. We have now, I think, five ratifications. Once we get 50 ratifications of this a specific ban treaty, then it's in force. Um, as you can imagine, the nuclear armed and nuclear weapon states um, have rejected the process, aren't engaging, haven't signed up to it, um, aren't willing to be members of this treaty. But before the treaty came into place, um, there was a big movement, a big initiative to try and raise awareness of the, the dangers of the use of these nuclear weapons, the catastrophic um, consequences on the environment, um, on populations. And that was really driven by organizations like ICANN and resulted in the ban treaty. Okay, because the goal of the ban treaty would be to make the use of nuclear weapons illegal. It would the, the ban treaty makes nuclear weapons illegal. Okay. So not even their use, just their existence. Their existence. Okay. Their possession, the acquisition, the development, the transition. Um, all aspects of nuclear weapons uh, possession and use would be banned. But the irony is all the countries that actually possess these weapons aren't engaging with the process mm-hmm. so it's only countries that are um that don't have these weapons that are frustrated by the slow pace of disarmament um by the nuclear weapon states that are the ones that are really driving the the ban treaty but the the nuclear non-proliferation treaty um that we discussed is such a important and yet fragile treaty um we you can see with the ban treaty the nuclear ban treaty that these countries are deeply frustrated are are really feeling that the nuclear weapon states aren't abiding by their obligation under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to disarm. And what the danger is, you're getting these parallel processes like the ban treaty, you know, avenues where other countries who feel like they can't uh, trust the nuclear weapon states that feel like um, their frustrations aren't being being addressed 
are, are looking to other alternative mm. um, instruments to try and push the, the nuclear weapon states into disarmament uh, measures. And the danger, um, one of the things that I'm quite concerned about is that the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which has you know, been in existence now since 1970, um, will, will fall apart. Um, mm. treaty, uh, countries will pull out of the treaty because they don't see it actually doing what it's supposed to do, which is basically push for disarmament from countries that have nuclear weapons and prevent countries that don't from acquiring them. Uh, a lot of the international diplomacy work around the issue of nuclear weapons, uh, from what you're saying, uh, is about state actors. Uh, but Secretary Perry seemed quite worried about the threats from non-state actors, uh, and we discussed terrorist groups. Um, and I mean, some experts even say that it's no longer a matter of whether it will happen, but more when it will happen. Uh, so do, do you agree that this is also a big threat today, not just countries leaving the non-proliferation um, system, but also maybe uh, terrorist groups just acquiring uh, nuclear weapons? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's a concern that a lot of... Um, you know, politicians and states um, have been aware of, as Secretary Perry um, said in his remarks. In the early 2000s, um, this was really an issue that came to the, to the kind of forefront of policymakers' minds when it transpired that a Pakistani scientist, A.Q. Khan, um, had been selling the um, nuclear designs and um, know-how to Libya, to Iran, to the DPRK. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this kind of proliferation of nuclear knowledge to um, kind of states and regimes which you wouldn't necessarily want to acquire this capability. Um, however, when um, President Obama um, came into office, he initiated a, the nuclear security summit process to try and um, basically uh, get control of nuclear, loose nuclear material. Um, he had a time frame of four years. I don't think that was, I don't believe that that was met. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, this was a huge undertaking where he got countries um, from all across the world to really engage with the process of um, controlling their loose nuclear material um, to make uh, it less likely for terrorists to acquire this, this um, material and this capability. And I guess before we wrap up, you've been working on these issues for, for more than a decade now. Um, and I guess when you started, we were not in the current, you know, quite concerning place in international politics. Do you at least think, though, that one of the silver linings is that we're now talking about these issues that you and people like the European Leadership Network and, and Bill Perry and others have been trying to get people to listen to? Do you feel like there's an audience now that are willing to listen? I, I would say... I wish there was a bigger audience than when I had started. And unfortunately, I actually think it's growing smaller. Um, which I mean, which is ironic, because you would expect mm. that with all the sort of media coverage of Trump and North Korea, etc., that people would actually be interested. It's like they know about it, but they don't necessarily take it as a serious threat to their own life. It's a bit more of like a science fiction thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people don't know how to engage with the issue. In, in a similar way to climate change, I think they think it's such a big problem. What can one individual do? What can you know someone who isn't um, part of a government actually do to, to affect change? Um, and I think when it was during the Cold War, people felt very visceral fear of nuclear conflagration. I think now 
people feel very removed from from the threat of nuclear weapons, certainly at a public level. Um, so I think there's absolutely more work to be done in terms of raising awareness of the issue amongst politics, uh, amongst countries, amongst peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, there's still a role for lots of different advocacy organisations to play um, to absolutely just raise the awareness of this issue. Work still needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what I understand, and more maybe to conclude this last part about what we can do and what would be the next step, the three priorities would be to make sure that non-state actors like terrorist groups don't uh, acquire nuclear weapons, uh, that states which currently own nuclear weapons reduce the stockpile. And the third one which would be to make sure that new states don't acquire uh, nuclear weapons. And this just leads me to mention the Iran nuclear deal, because we've been hearing a lot about it. And um, I was at the Munich Security Conference um, in February, uh, and just seeing uh, the Israeli Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu talking about this deal, comparing it uh, to things during the, the, the Nazi era, etc. And then uh, the former secretary, um, Perry, um, sorry, Kerry, um, trying to defend the deal. And you could really see that things are not necessarily uh, better today and that trying to keep Iran from um, having a nuclear weapon is still not something that is obvious in international uh, diplomacy. Yeah, I mean, the real irony is that the Iran nuclear deal was one of the great successes, I think, of the the past um, five years in terms of being quite an effective non-proliferation measure. Um, Iran agreed to quite intrusive uh, inspections and monitoring and kind of uh, scaling back of its nuclear capability um, so that it was able to re-engage with the international community and uh, develop its economy in ways that it couldn't before. Um, and it's really unfortunate that President Trump has been so critical of the deal and is very much trying to scupper it. Um, I think this would be really dangerous for the region, uh, for the Middle East, uh, if Iran um, also decided to no longer um, abide by the the, their, um, the nuclear deal. I think it would uh, be a potential proliferation risk. Um, and I think it would also... Uh, really undermine the U.S. credibility in terms of uh, abiding by its international agreements um, and damage relationships with allies such as the other European countries who were uh, party to this um, to this agreement. Um, so, once again, I think just more needs to be done to to make sure that international agreements are upheld. That countries do what they can to um, prevent proliferation. Um, I mean, there's a whole another conversation to be had about arms control, I think, mm-hmm. especially between the US and Russia. But uh, <laughs> I guess I think... that's for another <laughs> yeah, podcast absolutely. episode. But uh, yeah, I think that there hasn't been a great deal of positivity. Um, a little, a little bit towards the end, I yeah. guess. I mean, we had a great time before having dinner and we'll probably <laughs> go on having another bottle of wine now. But I think one bit of positivity we can take from it is that, you know, that there are some people who are really caring about these issues and there are some people who are really working hard from, you know, the people who've been working on it for decades and decades like um like bill perry and to the people like like you shatter who are working on it now and trying to raise awareness and and also to our i mean i want to say listeners but since we haven't actually published this yet it might just be listeners so <laughs> hi mum um the just say that people can go out and educate themselves and can be more aware of these things there is whilst obviously you know this might seem like a bit an issue for for you know people in governments and at the highest levels of of international politics but this is something that affects everyone and um and i guess if people want to find out more information um 
They can find out more information about the risks from um, Secretary Perry's um, organization, the William J. Perry Project, which is available at wjperryproject.org. Um, and you can find out more about the um, how we might go about avoiding a nuclear war and how the international diplomacy around it in a really sort of diverse and, and interesting way on websites like um, like Shatters at the European Leadership Network.org. And, uh, and I guess you can wait for our next um, installment of things that might kill us. But in between then, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, so you can uh, email us at thingsthatmight.gmail. Um, I'll follow us on Twitter at uh, thingsthatmight as well. Um, so, yeah, we really hope that you aren't, you know, hiding in a cupboard right now. Um, so for me, I just want to say thanks for listening and goodbye. 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 You've been listening to Things That Might Kill Us, a podcast by Joe Dobbs and Alice Piangalon. Music's by Juanitos and graphics by Chris Beck. Please rate and review on your podcast providers and tell your friends.